Amen. Take a seat. I know I have the unenviable task of transitioning from a wonderful, upbeat song into a serious message. So let's pray. Let's get our hearts ready. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we can't help but praise you that you are our God who saves. And we are, and will always be eternally grateful to think that we will be singing that for eternity. And none of us would be here apart from your work in our lives. All of us are grateful that you did not wait for us to come to you, but you humbled yourself and came to us. And so we need, once again, your help to open our eyes, to prepare our hearts, to speak to us this morning through your word. And Lord, may you be glorified through this message. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can get your Bibles out this morning. We'll be looking at this verse. I know you probably can't read it, but it's Matthew 5, 21 through 26. But I want to begin, while you are going there, you can just listen. I want to begin by reading uh, to you Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, and you can just listen to this. The title for this morning's message is, Are You a Murderer? And this is a story in Genesis, the first account of the first murder in human history. It says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, Cain and Abel obviously were the sons of Adam and Eve. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. That's just basically a picture of man trying to come to God on their own terms. Cain came on his terms, Abel came on God's terms. It's that simple. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Sadly, human history testifies that that was not the only murder. There has been murder after murder after countless murders. But I want to read to you uh, a heinous murder from contemporary times. And the reason it was in the news of, uh, recently, about a year ago. It says, in better times, Maryland Orange would make the same phone call every morning, bridging the distance between Blue Ridge and Falls Church, Virginia, for a short talk before her daughter, Jenny, headed off to work. A native of Botetourt County and a Virginia Tech graduate, Ginny Orange, 
moved to Northern Virginia in 2003 to take a job as an event planner for the Futures Industry Association, which follows the U.S. futures market. Every morning at 6.30 a.m., Marilyn Orange would call from her Blue Ridge home and wake her daughter up. So when Jenny Orange didn't answer the phone on a September morning in 2008, her mother feared something was wrong. After Jenny failed to show up for work, a police officer sent to check on her found the apartment door unlocked. Inside, he discovered Orange lying on the floor, her head covered in blood, naked from the waist down with her shirt pulled up to her neck. DNA and other evidence later established that her attacker had beaten Orange savagely before raping her as she lay dead on the dying floor. He hit her at least 30 times with a hammer. That was proved by the autopsy. Then he hit her eight times with a frying pan until the handle broke. Then seven times with a pot as she was trying to defend herself. It was an awful death. She choked on her own blood before she died. The crime was committed by the leasing agent of Orange's apartment complex who used a spare key in his possession to creep into her home as she dozed on the couch. Mark Lawler admitted that he killed Orange, but his lawyers asked the jury to convict him of the lesser charge of first-degree murder, arguing that Lawler's mind was so muddled by beer and crack cocaine that his actions did not meet the legal standard of capital murder. In the trial sentencing phase, the defense team cited Lawler's difficult upbringing. He was raised by an abusive mother and a pedophile father in asking the jury to spare his life. Lawler did not testify, nor did he apologize for his actions, either through his attorneys or by other means. Throughout his trial, he showed no remorse. Lawler had a has a past criminal record. He served a five-year prison sentence for abducting his estranged girlfriend. Lawler also did time as an 18-year-old for a drunken automobile wreck that killed a friend. Now, as the trial dragged on, Marilyn Orange set through graphic testimony about her daughter's murder in the bloody crime scene. But she said she had to leave the courtroom at other times, unable to listen to defense witnesses described Lawler as a religious man who showed no signs of being a cold-blooded killer. Very appropriately, she said, I feel like there must be evil in his heart. A Fairfax County jury sentenced Mark Lawler to death, but you know how this goes. As his case in our flawed judicial system, appeal after appeal prolonged his execution until 2019, when Steve Descano... A left-wing progressive was elected as Virginia Commonwealth's attorney in Fairfax County. Descano does not believe in the death penalty, as Virginia law authorizes, and even the most outrageous cases, such as the gruesome murder and rape committed against Jenny Orange. Descano crowed about his decision not to seek the death penalty in the Lawler case, boasting about the nobility of his decision. In 2020 alone, many Americans experienced significantly higher levels of violence, both 
brought on and within their communities. Over 19,000 people killed in shootings and firearm-related incidents in 2020. That's the highest death toll in 20 years. This is according to Josiah Bates of Time Magazine in a December 30th, 2020 article. Daryl Kluk, who uh, quotes the FBI report that came out around the same time, the FBI states that murder rates in the United States increased drastically during the first six months of the year, while other violent crimes, such as rape and robbery, offenses dropped. Well, why did those offenses, robbery and rape, go down? We were in our homes due to COVID. But according to the FBI, they found that murder and non-negligent manslaughter offenses increased by nearly 15%. Murder skyrocketed, or have skyrocketed this year, as local governments have become softer on crime. This is a sobering thought. In 57 major cities for which data was available, their murder rate is up an average of almost 37%. That's a staggering number. Murder went up in 51 cities. And to bring these statistics closer to home, murder is up almost 25% in Seattle. This is last year's data, which is obviously, we're a few, what, a week, 10 days out of last year. So that's fresh data. Now it's been a deadly year, and that's not just due to COVID-19. Now we can see that very little, if anything, has changed since the first murder recorded in Genesis. Very appropriately, Jesus tackles the issue of murder in his Sermon on the Mount. Read with me in your Bibles, Matthew 5, 21 to 26. I think the verse is up on your screen, if you can see it. I know it's probably, the font is probably too small in the back for you to read. But you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you that you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. The rest of our time this morning we'll be looking at this passage in a more in-depth manner. Let's look at verse 21, Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now last week, do you remember what I told you? The Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they were totally dependent upon who? The scribes and the Pharisees to teach them the word of God, because ever since the time of the Babylonian captivity, what language did they speak? Aramaic. They no longer spoke or even read Hebrew. And since the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that meant that the Hebrew scriptures were lost to them. Consequently, the rabbis and scribes kept the people in ignorance concerning the true word of God. So when we see this, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Jesus is referencing to his crowd what the rabbis and scribes were teaching the people about murder. 
But what does the scripture say about murder? In Matthew 5.21, the rabbis quoted this verse from Exodus. Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. Pretty simple, right? But scripture has a whole lot more to say about murder than just that. For example, and you can just listen, in the beginning we find this verse in Genesis. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made them. So to take the life of a human being is to attack what? The image of God he created in man. And with that comes a serious penalty. A life is forfeited, a death. So Genesis 9 authorizes what? Capital punishment for those who shed blood, because man is made in the image of God. And by the way, by murder here, it refers to premeditated murder. In fact, in speaking of cities of refuge that someone may flee to if they've killed a person, here is what God commanded in Numbers 35, 16 to 21. You'll get the idea of premeditated murder from this as well. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death, or shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. So the one who's seeking the Retribution shall put the person to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. Now watch this. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, meaning in anger, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. What's that talking about? Premeditated murder. He is a murderer. The text says, the blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So obviously, what is God saying here? Well, society was to protect itself by taking the life of the one with premeditative thought that took the life of another. Murder is also the crime that, believe it or not, originates from Satan. John 8, 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. What's his desire? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. So murder originates where? From Satan. But murder is also the result of an evil human heart. Jesus said this, Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come what? Evil thoughts, murder, Adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. So murder originates from Satan. It comes from an evil heart. It also is a result of a corrupted mind that has rejected God. Romans 1, 28 and 29. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Again, they reject God, and for those people that do, this is what happens to their minds.
what comes out, were they filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. So murder does not happen because of some social disadvantage like those lawyers tried to argue in Mark Lawler's case. It's not his fault, it's the fault of his parents. Murder doesn't happen because of some social disadvantage like poverty or trying circumstances. Murder happens because Satan authors it, a corrupt human heart desires it, and a depraved mind justifies it. That's how it happens. Now, do you want to know how seriously God views murder? Well, look at Revelation 22, 14 and 15. We read this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral, immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. In essence, the kingdom of heaven is not for murderers. So the kingdom of God, the eternal state, is not a place for murderers. And so while the rabbinic tradition was true, from Exodus 20, they rightly discerned that you shall not murder. And from Numbers 35, which I read to you, they rightly discerned that when someone commits murder, they are to die. They had interpreted the scriptures partially and then became satisfied with their partial interpretation and thereby justify themselves. Folks, we do the same thing. But Jesus is arriving on the scene, and in the sermon he's saying, that doesn't go far enough. There is much more. And let me show you what I mean. Here's what they were taught. You can read it right there. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Now the court here refers to a local court, a civic court. They're saying, you must not murder because you'll be in danger of being punished by the local court. Don't kill because if you do, you'll get in trouble with the law. Okay, that's the way we can think, right? But what about God? What does God's word say about murder? They didn't even mention divine judgment. They said nothing about heart motive. See, it was a very superficial external religion that they were teaching the people. But had they read the rest of the Old Testament, they would have discovered Psalm 51.6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Or how about Deuteronomy 6.5? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Or how about Jeremiah 17.10? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God who knows and tries the human heart will judge. So we must see that the part of God's law they left out was the internal part. It's not enough for you, and you had to hear me on this, it is not enough for you to not kill. That's not good enough for God. Because God's concerned with what's going on on the inside. 
You cannot restrict the scope of God's law to an act of murder and to an earthly court. And here we find in verse 22, Jesus raising the standard. Look at verse 22. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And let me re rephrase Jesus' words here. He is saying, let me tell you what God really means in Exodus 20, 13. It isn't the issue of murder alone. It's the issue of anger and hatred in your heart. You cannot justify yourself because you don't kill. If there's hatred in your heart, you are the same as a murderer. And for the citizens of God's kingdom, even anger against a brother, and the brother here, by the way, is a general term for first all peoples. Even anger against a brother is forbidden. Jesus' standard is nothing less than a total prohibition of anger. That's a much higher standard. See, it's not enough to strike a man. The only thing that is enough is not even to wish to strike him. It's not enough to even, even to have a hard feeling against him within the heart. You can't have that. And just so, by the way, you know, the liability at the end of verse 21, you're liable to the court, that liability refers to execution. And Jesus says the same thing here in verse 22. If you're angry, guess what? If you're angry, you are in danger of execution. And he says the same thing in verse 22. Capital punishment, let me put it this way, should belong to you for your anger as much as for a murderer. How many of you think that way? Since no one's raising their hand, I have an idea. So to help us grasp the depth of what Jesus is saying, I want you to think of verse 22 in the form of a question. And this question is simple, who is a murderer? Shannon, do you understand why I said you're a murderer now? Jesus says anybody who is angry with his brother, that's a murderer. No, why does he say that? Here's the point. Because anger is murder's root. You know how it goes. Anger leads to hatred, which leads to murder. And where does anger start? In the heart. If you don't deal with it, it'll become hatred and bitterness, and the result will be an action, and it can be murder. You see, when you're angry with someone, you're already on the path to murder. And it's only appropriate here, though, I have to define the type of anger that Jesus is referring to. The Greek word used here for anger is orgizo. It's a brooding, simmering anger that is nurtured and not allowed to die. You know anybody like that? I do. 
It's seen in the holding of a grudge and the smoldering bitterness that refuses to forgive. It is the anger that cherishes resentment and it doesn't want to reconcile. This type of anger, our Lord says, is the same as murder and deserves equal punishment. And this type of anger originates from the heart. And because of what's going on on the inside, you are in danger of judgment from the local court. You're in danger of judgment, Jesus says, of the Supreme Court, which would be the, the council. And folks, you are in danger of the very fires of hell. Just like in Jeremiah 17, 10 that I just read, Jesus reminds us that it is the heart that God judges. Because the standard of righteousness is the heart. Now you may hate more than an actual murderer hates. You just don't have an opportunity to kill. And even a less violent hatred than that, even anger with a brother to any degree, is in the eyes of God the same thing as murder. And so frankly, who is a murderer? I'm looking at a room full of murderers, aren't I? You're looking at one right now. Remember the words of the Apostle John. I mean, this stuff is everywhere throughout the Bible. It just says, when you study it, it just jumps out at you. 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How does this anger manifest itself? Pastor Phil Newton, I thought, had some helpful words to make this passage even more relevant to us today. He says this, to begin with, Jesus is not giving stages or degrees leading to murder, but showing the different manifestations of the same heart attitude. Anger may manifest itself in lashing out or verbally or physically attacking someone. It may also be what has been termed passive-aggressive, in which the angry person may not say anything ugly, but treats the other person or persons with personal contempt. You ever do that? It may be the silent treatment or even manifest in what he does not say to another person when he should be commenting in a helpful fashion. The slow seething of the angry person looks for ways to express animosity as much by what he does not do as by what he does. Now perhaps if we kept this mind in our, this thought in our minds, we would diligently guard our heart against anger. Here's a thought I'd like for you to think of. When you have this type of anger, God looks down from heaven he points to you and says, what? Murderer. Or perhaps if we kept this thought in our minds, we would diligently guard our hearts against anger. Here's the thought. Satan hates God and his people. And when he finds a believer with the sparks of anger in his heart, he gains a foothold. He then fans those sparks of anger 
adds fuel to the fire and does a great deal of damage to God's people in his church. It's Ephesians 4.27. I've seen that play out. Folks, the fire of anger, if it's not quenched by loving forgiveness, will spread and defile and destroy the work of God. Now, if you're not feeling, maybe you are feeling convicted enough, I apologize because you're going to even feel more convicted as we go to this next section. Angry words. Now, you've heard me tell of my struggle with my mouth. It's got me into more trouble than I care to admit. At this point in the sermon, I think a word from Solomon is timely, and it's Proverbs 18:21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Since we speak out of what? The heart. We speak out of our hearts. Jesus warns us that out of an angry heart comes murder and even death. Now the phrase in Matthew 5, 22, you good for nothing, it means idiot. You idiot. I want to ask you to raise your hands. Who said that? Because everyone would raise their hands. You get so angry you call someone or think that they're an idiot. They very well may be an idiot, but that's not the point, is it? You call someone an idiot when you're angry. Not only are you intentionally insulting a person, but you're also attacking a person's self-worth and dignity. You do that, in God's eyes, you are what? A murderer. You call someone a fool when you're angry. It too is an attack on their character, and in God's eyes, you are what? I'm hearing this side say it, and it's two or three people. I don't understand why everyone here is not answering it. But are you, when you say that, you call someone a fool in anger? In God's eyes, you're a what? Good. How about this one? How about the angry person who says or even thinks, I wish you were dead? You ever think that? The power of death are in, in life are in the tongue. And if you think that or pray that, you have just prayed to God and spoken death into that situation. You've killed with your abusive, unkind speech. You are what in God's eyes? A murderer. Now, how does God deal with this kind of person? Well, quite frankly, and the text is right here, he sends them to hell. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. It's a word that was very commonly used by the Jews, and they knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he was preaching this. It means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is a valley to the southwest of Jerusalem. It was notorious as a place where King Ahaz had introduced into Israel the fire worship of the heathen god Moloch, to whom little children were burned in the fire. Josiah, the reformed king, had stamped out that worship, had ordered that the valley should be forever after an accursed place. So in consequence of this valley, Phenom became the place where the trash of Jerusalem, the refuse, was cast out and destroyed. And it was just kind of this public incinerator. Always the fire smoldered in it and the fire would blow over Jerusalem so there'd be this kind of constant stench. A reminder of this valley of Hinnom, which 
Jesus is going to call hell here in a moment. A pall of thick smoke lay over it. It bred a, a loathsome kind of worm that was hard to kill. So Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, became identified in people's minds with all that was accursed and filthy, the place where useless and evil things were destroyed. That is why it became a synonym for the place of God's destroying power, hell. Now, this is, gets hard here, but Look at the progression. So then Jesus insists that the greatest thing of all is to destroy with what? Our hateful words. Do you see that? What's he saying there in verse 22? There is no act there. There's no physical taking of life. What's in danger of this severe judgment? It's anger and the stuff that comes out of your mouth, folks. So no punishment is too severe for the malicious talebearer or the gossip which murders people's reputations. Such conduct, in the most literal sense, is a hell-deserving sin. I, I, I know us, and I know you enough, I bet you, you don't think that way. I don't think we grasp the severity of our Lord's words. Again, notice his progression of thinking. Long-lasting anger is bad. You see that? Contemptuous speaking. You know, you, you hold someone in contempt. You speak contemptuously to them. That's a feeling inside. So long-lasting anger is bad. Contemptuous speaking is worse. And the malicious talk which destroys a person's character is worst of all. And so Jesus ruthlessly attacks the sin of anger, the sin of slander, and the sin of cursing. And he says the punishment is nothing less than what? Hell. And the thing is, this person he's talking to, they may never have committed the act of murder, but he is a murderer in his heart. She is a murderer in her heart. That is raising the standard. And so he's going to tell you, this is what I want you to do. You reconcile before you worship. Look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. A.W. Tozer said this, The fury of man never furthered the glory of God. What I want you to keep in mind is that Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 21-26, they come right after his call for us to be what in the world? Salt and light. And that, by our actions, we are to bring glory to God. But the fury of man never advances the glory of God. And one way we bring glory to God is what? Reconcile. Now, unlike today... Worship was an integral part of life, particularly Jewish life, and especially for the scribes and Pharisees. They're in the temple all the time worshiping God, making sacrifices, carrying out the law, 
here Jesus condemns that very worship. I mean, look at verse 23. Therefore refers back to what was previously said, namely, that God's concerned with the internal, with the heart attitude. Since God is concerned with attitudes toward others, how you feel about your brother, how you speak to your brother, and whether or not you curse your brother, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember your brother, and brother again is all kinds of people, you remember your brother has anything against you, leave there your gift before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Clearly, it's simple, reconciliation before worship of God. Now, every Jew would understand the scene that Jesus just created. The idea of sacrifice for them was very common. If a man committed a sin, a separation came between himself and God, and how was that to be remedied? It was to be remedied by a contrite and broken heart, confession of sin, and a demonstration of repentance in the form of bringing an animal sacrifice. Obviously, the animal isn't the issue. You understand that? The issue was the heart attitude. Obedience in the heart is better than sacrifice. First Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So the sacrifice was merely an outward symbol of a repentant, obedient heart. And so when the separation came and the man repented and in sorrow asked for forgiveness and set things right with God, then he brought a sacrifice. This is what he would do. He would walk through the outer part of the courtyard, walk to the inner court, in the inner part of the courtyard, and finally he'd come to the court of the priests, and that was as far as he could go. He had to stop there. He wasn't allowed to enter. Only the priests could go in there. And he'd take the sacrifice that he brought, he'd give it to the priest, and he would lay his hands on the sacrifice to identify with it. And at this very point, Jesus says, stop right there. You remember you have a brother who has something against you. Leave that altar. Don't make that sacrifice until you make things right with your brother. In other words, settle the separation between man and man before you settle the separation between man and God. Look at verse 23 again. If you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you. Folks, it isn't even that you're angry. It's that he's angry at you. Do you see how important it is that we have right relationships? If you don't, you better get on God's agenda. So in verse 22, he says, if you're angry, you're in danger of condemnation. And in verse 23, he says, if anyone's angry at you, I don't want your worship. Now next, he's going to show you how to reconcile. Now, ever since I've arrived here, I've told you one thing not to do. That is, hurry up. I encourage you to slow down, right? We talk about that a lot. Well, I'm telling you right now, hurry up. Look at verse 25 and 26. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way, so your opponent 
may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. These two verses give us an example. You've left your worship so you can go bridge the separation between you and your brother so you can return to your worship of God. And here's how you do it. Quickly. In his illustration, Jesus borrows from the old legal method of dealing with debtors in Jewish society. The idea is that you're here worshiping, but you've got a debt. And it's come to the place where you're actually being dragged into court over this debt. Well, his solution is you make friends quickly. That's the key. You do it immediately. You do it now. Now, we're human, all of us, and human tendency is to put things off. We like to procrastinate. Jesus, Jesus says, not with reconciliation. Because tomorrow may be too late. You'll be cast into prison and stuck there without the possibility of ever paying back that debt. In Jewish law, when a man was judged guilty and he was judged to be the debtor, he was handed over to the court officer who would try to extract from the individual the payment of the creditor. If he can't get it, he takes the man into default, puts him in prison until he can pay it back. But the point is what? You're in prison. You can't ever pay it back. Now knowing this, Jesus says what? Settle it out of court before it's too late. Reconcile before severe judgment is handed down and you can't reconcile at all. Now what does he mean here? Does he mean that the time will come when the person will die and never be able to reconcile, perhaps? Does he mean that the time will come when God will discipline you and judge you and it'll be too late, perhaps? But what he does say is this, you can't worship me unless your relationships are right. I don't want it. So hurry, make them right. Don't let them get to the place where there'll be a civil judgment made and somebody loses in the end. And I believe in the final analysis, what Jesus is really saying is that God is the real judge and hell is the real punishment in this passage. If you don't make things right, you may find yourself in an eternal hell with a debt that could never be paid. So let's sum up Jesus' teaching. Just like the Pharisees and scribes who trust in their own self-righteousness, you too can fall, and I myself, including me myself in this, can fall into the trap of thinking that just because you don't kill, you think you're right with God. But let me tell you something. If you're angry, if you've ever said a malicious word about somebody's character, if you've ever cursed anybody, you're like a murderer. If you've ever come to church to worship God and had something against your brother, you're in danger of such judgment. God rejects your hypocritical worship. He demands that you leave that gift and run to make that relationship right. You run to make that relationship right. And when you get into a conflict with somebody, immediately, as fast as you can, resolve that issue because you too, guess what, are in danger of hell.
Now, this isn't easy. Well, here's some of my advice. Don't reconcile this way. This is true. Jesse Jacobs has created an apology hotline that makes it possible to apologize without actually talking to the person you've wronged. Isn't that so American? People, I don't want to laugh, but it's kind of funny, who are unable or unwilling to unburden their conscience in a person call the hotline and leave a message on an answer machine. And each week, 30 to 50 calls are logged as people apologize for things from adultery to embezzlement. The hotline offers participants a chance to alleviate their guilt and to some degree to own up to their misdeeds, said Jacobs. The apology hotline may seem to offer some relief from guilt. Folks, that's not how you reconcile. That's how some of you may want to reconcile, right? Let me give you another bit of advice. Don't reconcile via email or text. How about do it this way instead? How far would you travel to put things right with a brother you haven't spoken to maybe in 10 years or more? Someone you're in a bad relationship with or a strained relationship. How far would you be willing to travel? Would you go 300 miles from Iowa to Wisconsin? On a riding lawnmower? Well, unable to drive a car, In despising bus travel, Alvin Strait did exactly that. In the film, The Strait Story, true life drama of a 73-year-old man who decided it was time to end the silence, stop the hating, and break down the wall of anger he and his brother had built between them. I can tell you right now, God in heaven looking down at two people in strained relationships The one calls the hotline. The one drives 300 miles on a lawnmower. That's a citizen of my kingdom. That's a citizen of hell. Now there's not one of us in this room that's not guilty of everything Jesus spoke of in our text this morning. We've all been angry. That can make it really... A visual of this, I could everyone stand, and if you're not guilty of any things, you can sit down, and we would all be standing. We've all said malicious things, we've all thought a curse, we've all worshipped in hypocrisy, we've all been unreconciled to a brother for some period of time. We're all deserving of judgment in hell. What are we going to do then? I believe that. This is exactly what Jesus is after. So he wants to drive his audience, he wants to drive us to the fact that I cannot be righteous on my own. Which I hope in turn will drive us to our knees, at the foot of the cross, to accept the imputed righteousness that only Jesus Christ can offer. That's what he was saying to his audience, and that's what he is saying to us. And so I'm going to go on a limb here and say, you guys probably have an idea of what the application point would be for this week. Make those strained relationships right and do it now. Hurry up. I think that for all of us, 
and I can tell by looking at you, you need to start to rethink the idea of anger and the idea of murderer. I think that even the words that you say may reveal if you are a murderer, at least in the heart, knowing that God views you as a murderer if you're angry. Now, I'm not talking about, a, 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 again, a, a, that righteous anger or just a brief momentary anger, but a longer-term anger. You're a murderer in the eyes of God. And his standard is, uh-uh. That doesn't count it with me. You have, your righteousness must go beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. What he just said in those words, what I, I hope to explain to you this morning, is the very character of a person of his kingdom. Because if you go through the Beatitudes, where does that simmering anger fit in any of those descriptions in the Beatitudes? It doesn't. Yet we must begin to think that way about murder and anger and about lust or adultery, about giving your word or, and keeping your vows, about retaliation, and on and on he goes. Because this is a natural transition, this sermon series, into a bigger problem that we are facing in our country. We have to learn to live differently because this, there, our country is rapidly changing. What was once a conservative country, we now know is a divided country and it's leaning more and more and more away from our conservative values. And so your living your life will be put to the test. But if you have the godly character, he will enable you to live it out. I don't know when, but it's inevitable there will be persecution coming. And you can't be angry in here. Because if you are, you are what? A murderer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your words this morning to us. It's a hard word. We don't deny that. But it's a good word as well. And I thank you for raising the standard. I thank you that for your people, you've given us a new heart. We desire the things that, that you desire. And I pray that we would diligently guard our heart against anger and not have those anger and hateful thoughts that manifest itself in words and actions. Father, when you look down from heaven and you see us, may there be no murderers in this place. And all God's people said, amen.